We're going to look at Hebrews 9 to 10, and we're going to talk, you know, this series is Making a Way, and uh, today we're talking about making a way to a clean or clear conscience, Uh, making a way to a clear conscience. And uh, we're in chapter 9 through 10, or 9 through, uh, yeah, 9 through 10. This is what we're going to do, okay? Um, we, we can't read the whole thing, so I'm going to read snippets, verses here and there from uh, kind of a, we're doing a little bit of a survey from chapter 9 and half of chapter 10. I'm going to come back on and preach on the second half of chapter 10, May 10th, okay? You might be like, what? What's that about? Well, uh, we're having a new members Sunday um, on May 10th, a kind of a membership Sunday where there's baptism and there's, there's cool stuff that happens on that. And that second half of Hebrews 10 just fits perfectly for it. So I'll come back and address that on May 10th. Uh, we'll be in, uh, in um, chapter 11 and 12 for Easter next week. You know next week's Easter, right? Yeah, yeah, that's on your radar. Good. That's like a big deal for us as Christians. And this is Holy Week. Oh, and that was the one thing I forgot to say is that Love Feast was supposed to be tonight. You know, that's our communion service where we go through the whole like uh, Lord's Supper, feet washing, and the, uh, breaking of bread, all that stuff. And that, um, the, the whole thing. But that, we're not doing that tonight like we were planning on because the service for Bob's tonight, we're going to do that on Thursday, which is cool because Thursday is when most churches do that anyway. That's Monday, Thursday. That's the night that uh, we celebrate when Christ had the Last Supper anyway. So we'll be doing that on Thursday, um, which, and then we'll have uh, the Tenebrae service um, on Friday and then Easter on Sunday, obviously. Um, where was I? Um, oh, so... Um, Chapter 9 to half of chapter 10, I'm going to read a couple verses, a few verses from there just to kind of give you a survey of that chapter and a half and then pull out a few threads um, from that and talk about uh, those threads. Okay, that's what we're going to do. Join me in prayer. Father God, we just ask that you would be with Josh Bitework right now. That Father God, as he is there with Drexel Hill, you would give him favor, you would bless him, that as he communicates with them, they would feel the love of God, the washing of their father, and, the, and that they, uh, the word would communicate strongly to them. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Father, we ask that you be with the Latchall family right now. And I know that, uh, that they're kind of doing church at home today, and then they're going to be over here. And so, God, we just ask that you bless them, give them comfort today, walk with them all the way through this day, that they would know your presence, especially be with Rosella, God, as she's missing her husband. And um, she knows you really well, um, and she's very accustomed to leaning into you. I know that she's accustomed to leaning into you along with Bob, um, but she's also uh, very, very capable of uh, receiving your love um, on her own there. And so, God, I just ask that you would bless her in that way. In the name of Jesus, amen. So uh, in in Hebrews, the whole story, you remember what's going on, is that it's this is getting toward the end of the first century. We're getting later in the first century here. And um, the the Jews that have been scattered all over the place, the, the author of Hebrews is saying to all the Jews who are scattered all over, who are still practicing a measure of Judaism, he's trying to tell them that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that they've ever looked for, that he has filled it all up, and he's overflowing, and he's far better than everything else that they've ever experienced. So it's time to graduate from Judaism into Jesus. 
That's what he's saying, you know. And so he goes bit by bit throughout the book showing, like, Moses was this, but Jesus is this. And the angels came and gave you this, but Jesus came and gave you this. And he keeps doing that kind of thing. And when we get to Hebrews 9 and 10 here, he's talking about the atonement of the old law. And the atonement is when people um, would come into the temple and there would be a sacrifice of animals to atone for their sins. And the priest would, would shed the blood of the animals in order that the, the, that the worshiper could enter in and, and offer their communication to God. And um, he's saying that was in place, but Jesus now is the high priest and Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb. The word temple means to cut. And so what that means is you, when you go to the temple, the whole point is the sacrifice because that's what makes it available for us to enter in relationship with God. Jesus now is the high priest who's doing the cutting. Jesus is also the lamb who is the one who is cut on our behalf, okay? And so uh, that's what the whole premise of this uh, text is about. I want you to look at a few different verses. First, if you can look at verse 9, and I won't read the whole verse. I'm just going to pull out a few things. In verse 9, it says, those gifts and sacrifices, they cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper. So you can offer the sacrifices and the lambs, but the conscience of a worshiper will not be perfected through that. We will still have a heavy conscience, okay? Verse 12, it says, He entered once and for all into the holy places by means of his own blood. So in the way that the priest went in by shedding the blood of others, Jesus enters into the holy of holies by shedding his own blood. And in verse 14, in contrast to the to those other sacrifices, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. Okay? Then in uh, chapter 9, verse 22, there's this strong statement that you may have heard quoted before. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you grew up in Awana or uh, in a King James environment, that word would be, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We're like, what is that? Yeah, exactly. Forgiveness. So that's why we have another translation too. Um, in verse 24, not into holy places. Jesus entered not into holy places made with hands, but listen, Jesus entered into heaven itself and now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Woo, it's awesome. Okay, verse, 20, uh, verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In chapter 10, it says, uh, in verse 2, since the worshipers, again, talking about the worshipers, have once been cleansed, it was saying, if you were cleansed by the, the what, what it's talking about here is if you had been cleansed because of the sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or whatever was sacrificed at the altar, um, that obviously it doesn't purify you because since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You're having to keep sacrificing. In verse 9, Christ adds, it says he added, referring to Jesus, I have come to do your will. That's the will of the Father. 
He does away with the first order. He does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that will, that's the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. In verse 12, it says, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Listen to this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In verse 16, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Those are awesome verses, aren't they? Spectacular. Huge doctrinal solid verses that remind us of what it's all about. Okay, so uh, a few threads that I want to pull out. The first one is about worship. It, what it says here is it refers to, it says sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper. And uh, the understanding and the basic premise is that we are called to be worshipers. The whole assumption here is that our primary objective in life is to worship God. And what does that mean? I mean, for us, oftentimes that means that we're here singing awesome songs with an awesome band, which can be a whole lot of fun. And that is definitely a big part of worship. But uh, Romans 12 says that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our holy and pleasing act of worship. The way we worship is by giving ourselves to God, wholeheartedly, fully given over to God. And this would have been the assumption of those who were reading because he's not writing to the secular culture. He's not writing to the Jews or he's not writing to the Greeks and to the Romans. He's writing to the Jews who knew this is what we were about. You know, we're about worshiping God. This is their very identity. The whole book is written to a religious crowd. And so he's saying, but this religious crowd, your conscience needs to be okay in order for you to worship. The assumption is that you're trying to worship for some clueless about the fact that life is about worship. That's not who this book is written to. This book is written to those who know that their life is about worship, okay? And so this is something that's really important to take note of right now, is that in the last like half a century, there's been a resurgent emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ across the Western church, which is awesome because what it used to be is that it used to be the church was kind of an institution that was like the pillar of religion in society. And everyone who wanted to be religious or have some affiliation with God, you come to the religious institution and you connect as a part of that church to God. And so the bride, the church, has a relationship with God. I can connect to the bride, to the church. And that was my relationship with God, was my relationship to the church. But in the last like 50 years or so, there's been a huge resurgence in communication about our own personal ability to connect individually to God. Amen? Amen. And so, like, I can actually have a living, dynamic relationship with God where the Holy Spirit not only indwells among the church, he also dwells inside of me and can lead me and guide me, and I can keep in step with the Spirit and have a living, dynamic relationship with God, and I can enter personally into the Holy of Holies and have a relationship with God. Spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. However, there's danger. And here's the danger in that communication. 
I need to stop before I move further. If you have not had that, if you have not entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are missing out. You were designed for this. You were made for this. Your life and your heart can be full of vitality and you can experience purpose and meaning and joy in your life that you can't possibly imagine until you walk with a companion who is God Almighty dwelling in you. Can I get an amen? There it is. <laughs> and, um, and so if you haven't done that, this message explains what that's about and how you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But do not leave here today. Do not leave here without entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Come and talk to one of us, to somebody. Me, I'd be happy to talk with you, okay? Um, here's the danger. As we emphasize personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there is also at times an ability for that to turn into something that sounds very casual. Like we can become so comfortable with Jesus that we forget other parts of who Jesus still is. Because Jesus is our friend and he's our companion and he's our comforter and he's our guide. But do you know who else Jesus is? Jesus is also Father. And Jesus is also King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is also master. And Jesus is also the judge, the righteous judge. And Jesus is also God. And so if I, if I think that because Jesus is close and personal, then therefore I can deal with him as my buddy and not also have to deal with him as God, then I'm missing something. And it's a fake relationship. It's not a fully developed relationship. I'm not saying I don't have any relationship with him. I'm saying that I'm not, it's not the fullness of who Christ is and I'm missing some things. I actually have to come to Christ underneath in a posture of submission. If I don't come underneath and I'm only like, he's here to make me feel better and to be the therapeutic one who makes me feel okay about my life so I can do better, that is not God. He comes to be God and he will never change who he is. He will always be the judge. He will always be the master. He will always be the king. He will always be God. And he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. And not one of us can stand up to him and tell him what to do. Just ask Job. You know? It doesn't work. We are like cattle to God on one level. You know? On one level, all we are is his creatures. He made us. We didn't even make cattle. But he made us. He can do whatever he wants, and he doesn't have to answer to us. But we do have to answer to him. Because he's God, and he's our maker. You know? And those are, those are heavy words. Those are big words, but those are true words. And if we don't get those words, then we won't get the companionship words either. We'll get mixed up. See, this is how it works. There is no form of love that doesn't also require justice. I have two sons, not one. And so if one of those sons does something to the other son, mean, which I've never seen happen before in my life, if one of them... <laughs> does something mean to the other son. My picture of love, our society's picture of love, is that I kind of say to my son who's done something wrong. If I say to my son who's like, oh, you've done something wrong, it's okay, I love you, don't worry about it, it's okay, I forgive you, and all of that. Okay, that's like compassionate, that's love. But what about my other son who just got worked? Am I standing up for him? Can I believe in a God who's compassionate but not just? 
Because then my other son is sitting there saying, are you seriously going to let him get away with that? Where is the justice in this world? Ah, there is no justice. Don't worry about it. Just be nice to people. There is no way I'm going to be nice back to him when he's doing that to me. And I can't count on anyone else in this world to stand up for me. It would be completely inappropriate for me to just be okay with that. Because somebody's got to stand up for what's right. And someone's got to protect me. But if they have a father who loves them, then the father says that is not okay. And sin does not go unpunished. And there is discipline in this home because we discipline those whom we love. And I am not first your buddy. I am first your father. And someone needs to hold the line here. And I'm going to hold the line. And then after all that's done, I'm going to tell you that was not okay. You know, and there's going to be consequences for that. Then I'm going to figure out how to restore you to right relationship with me. So you know you don't just have to cower in fear of your father. But you can also enjoy deep fellowship with your father. But I am still your father. And if you step outside of that, I will still be your father. You know? And, and we need to know this. And so the basic assumption here, when it says that the purification of the conscience of the worshiper needs to take place, the understanding is, is we are worshipers, we are creatures, and we are called to submit to God. And it all starts there. And if I'm not in a posture where I'm in searching for God's principles and searching to know what he wants for my life in order to submit to that, then I'm missing part of it. I'm missing the first step. We can't understand the mercy of God until we first understand the law of God. Okay, so until you understand right and wrong, until we find ourselves failing, (laughs) then we can't understand the mercy. And so we actually have to search the scriptures for the truth and try to submit ourselves to it. And we will find ourselves falling short all the time. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. (laughs) There it is. I was hoping someone was going to jump on that one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a couple more that time. I gave you a second chance. It's all over. Another thread that I want to pull here is um, it talks about sacrifices throughout this text, um, about bearing the sins and shedding the blood. And this is about the justice of God. So um, God, in his love, is both compassionate and merciful and a just God. Those are both portions of his love. It's not like there's love and the justice is out here. Just everything is part of God's love. Okay, so his justice is part of his love. He loves all of us, so there must be justice. And part of that justice means that he has to hold the line when we sin. So when we sin, our sin must be punished if there will be justice in this world. And so that's why it says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay. And that's why it talks about the bearing of our sin. There's a substitutionary atonement. So atonement means when you pay for something. And so when you've done something wrong, there has to be payment or punishment for that. Atonement is the blood that is shed on my behalf. This starts at the Passover lamb when, you know, they have to paint the blood of the lamb above the door and, and there will be the angel of death will pass over. And then the whole sacrificial system was based on that atonement. And what it says though is that Jesus is our Atonement. So this week we will celebrate, quote unquote, Good Friday. We will observe Good Friday where we will remember that he has borne our sins by shedding his blood. And the point of the shedding of blood is to, to, to continue with justice, but it's also this, to wash the conscience 
the guilty conscience of the worshiper. Because we need to not be still holding on to the heaviness if we will re-enter into that place of fellowship with our dad, with our father, you know? And if we want to have that relationship, we need to be washed. So we're told, another thread here, is that that forgiveness that happened through Jesus is a once and for all forgiveness. It's not an ongoing thing where Jesus has to atone again and again. In the sacrificial system, every year they would come down and they'd have to buy animals and the animals would be slaughtered in front of them and there'd be blood. And every time they're being reminded of their sin. And so that's why it doesn't perfect your conscience because you're sitting there and you're like, here we go again. I got to watch this animal get slaughtered for me. You know, that's not a cool thing. Animal sacrifice, we all know. It's like, you hear animal sacrifice now and you're like, what? You know, and you think that's satanic. You realize animal sacrifice didn't start, that's not a satanic thing. Like, that's an Old Testament thing. That's like our God required animal sacrifice. You know, that's our God who required that. That's weird. You know, if anyone's doing it now, it's not okay. But back then, that's what, that's what he required. And the reason was you had to feel the weight of your sin. We had to know what it cost, and we would see the cutting. Remember the temples to cut, and we would see the blood. And every time we're reminded, I cannot get past this junk. I keep sinning, and it keeps costing blood. Because God's just. Praise God he's just. And praise God that he's provided atonement for me. But I am so sick and tired of seeing things die because of my sin. And that's what the law did. It constantly reminded us of our sin. You know, and it brought us to that place. But with Jesus, there's something different. There's an atonement that lasts for all time. And there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. His atonement covers, his atonement covers everyone's sin for all the time. Who will receive that as the atonement? Those who receive him as the atonement receive that forgiveness and it washes them. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. He's speaking to a religious culture who's used to the rhythm of having to sacrifice for their sins. And if you know anything about a culture that's based in a a religious culture that has guilt as a very core part of like you feel guilty, so then you have to do this. When you're used to that, there's a cyclical rhythm to I fail and then I have to do this to confess it. And world religions, every world religion in the world is is kind of based in this ability to try to self-improve or self-sacrifice or do something to atone for my own sins. And there might be one that provides, you know, here and there, those who provide something else or someone else atones for my sins. But there's no breaking of that cycle. And the cycle, what that does is, is when Jesus says, you're forgiven, you are forgiven, your sins are gone, they are cast as far as the east is from the west, you no longer have any sin. It is one thing to know that. It is a whole completely, entirely different thing to feel that. And I don't know if you've ever known something that you have a hard time feeling, um, but it can be really difficult to have have the reality match with my feelings in certain situations. I, a comical story of this, sort of comical, at my wife's expense. I asked her if I could say it. Um, we were Jen and I broke up for nine months right before we got engaged. Go figure. I, I was so jacked up, just messed up, and I needed to go get stuff right with the Lord. I couldn't figure out my, my head. And so I, we, were, we were apart from each other for nine months, and the Lord completely transformed my life 
uh, showed me the gospel in a whole new way and uh, and changed me. And then at the end of that, I, I proposed to her, um, and we had we were just done, you know. But then the next time I saw her, I just... I was like, there's no sense in dating anymore. We might as well get married at this point. We'd already dated for four years, and we'd been broken up for nine months. It was about a year later or so, or two years later, she was talking about that time when we were apart. And we were sitting there on the couch. I think we were on a couch. And um, she was saying, talking about how painful that time was. You know, because she loved me, and I loved her. But we couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And uh, she was talking about how painful that time was. And as she was talking about it, it started to hurt again. You know, because she could remember what that felt like. And she got emotional in that moment. And for a while, she was kind of talking about that and expressing that. And I was like, oh, man, such a slouch and everything. And then eventually, I was like, you do realize, like, I'm right here, right? You don't have to cry anymore. Like, it did actually work now. We're restored. You can have joy again. Like, God healed us. And, and we started laughing. Both of us started laughing and just busting out laughing. She's like, yeah, that's true. And we, every now and then we refer back to that as like, you know, I'm right here, you know, anytime. And it's this thing where sometimes we have a hard time. Kind of, we can still feel what's back there. And sometimes we can still live in what we felt back there instead of living in what's right here. You know, if you've ever been abused, if you've been in a, in a situation, some, uh, there might be women in this room who have been raped. There might be women in this room who have been abused. There might be guys in this room who have been rejected by their fathers, who have been beat by their dads. There might be people in this room who have been rejected in relationships, who have been betrayed by friends. There are people in this room. All of us have suffered some sort of pain. And that pain can have lasting effects on the grooves in our brains that put calluses around our hearts. And there might be truth that has changed because of the gospel. But to get our hearts to feel that is something very different than just to get our minds to comprehend that. And so knowing something up here and changing it down here is different. I I think about sometimes about someone who's been convicted of a crime that they didn't actually commit. You hear about this every now and then and someone who's been serving in prison and then they get exonerated. Like, and they've been, there's that one guy in Ohio I heard about recently, like a year ago or something. He had served for like 35 years, a life sentence. And then they realized they got DNA evidence and everything because the technology increased and they realized he didn't do it. And they set this guy free, you know, and uh, it was amazing. Like, and I was like, I wonder what it's like when you've lived in prison for 35 years and now you got to like just, and you thought you were going to die in prison and now your reality is different. What's it like to like re-alter your mind and rewire? He had to work so hard to get his mind probably to peace about that. And now it's this whole other thing. And then there's this possibility of like resentment, you know, which sets up a whole nother prison you know, of resentment and all that. And this guy, I remember seeing the interview with him and he's like, I don't blame anybody. He's like, I don't have time for that. I wasted all my time in prison. I'm going to enjoy my life. He's like, I have people who've been praying for me. I have people who are loving on me. He's like, and uh, I forget what he said. I want to go see the Cavaliers play. I want to see LeBron play. <laughs> you know, it was, it was something, you know, it was that kind of thing. And uh, he said it was, it, it was this joy of like, he had to come to terms with that while he was there and he chose not to pick it back up, you know, to be free from the prison. I used to saw the Amanda Knox 
a trial thing possibly that's been going on for years now, you know, and who knows? I have no, no, none of us could have any idea what the, the truth is about that situation. But anytime you see a high profile case that goes up and down like that, there's always these weird things about it and you never know what's going on. But what you do know is whether a person is innocent, innocent or guilty, when you get out of that prison and you walk free, freedom is not whether you're behind bars or not. Freedom is what's going on here and here, right? And only that person between them and God is going to know how free they actually are. And there are times in our lives where we carry guilt. We carry it and we carry it and we carry it. And it is a bondage for us. You know what the difference between guilt and shame is? The other day, I did something that I shouldn't have done. I'm still, by the way, a complete and total bozo. Uh, I should be a little more clear about that. I am not a bozo. I am a sinner. I am a selfish sinner. And the other day, I, I did something that I wasn't happy about. My heart and the way I communicated about something and what I was saying was inappropriate with my wife. And uh, she didn't even know. She didn't even know. And I'm sitting downstairs kind of messing with the fire and um, she's upstairs, and I realized, oh, man, the guilt came. I'm like, that wasn't okay. And so I'm like, ah, she doesn't even know that it's there, so I'm just going to kind of let that go. And then I'm like, that's not going to work because that's going to separate us, you know? There's a part of me that I'm hiding now and, and putting a cover on, and that part of me won't be connected to her, so i got to go make this right. So I walked upstairs, and I was like... I'm a jerk, you know, and then I shared with her um, what I did, and she graciously forgave me. I also asked her if this was okay, by the way, to share, and um, and she graciously forgave me, but you know what happened is I was feeling guilt, but then I stopped feeling guilt. You know what I started feeling? Shame, right? Because shame is what we feel from, like, the reality, the embarrassment of who we are. Guilt is justice. I'm wrong. I'm guilty. I know it. Embarrassment is the shame part of it. Everyone knows that. Now I'm ashamed of it. And the difference where I go from guilt to shame is confession. Or I get caught. <laughs> you know, so I either get caught or I confess it. And then it moves from a place of guilt because once I get caught, justice most likely will happen. You know, people will either hate me or they will forgive me or I will be punished or something like that. That's the guilt being dealt with by justice. But shame is a whole other thing. And shame creates this cycle. So after Jen forgave me, what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to kind of like, she was like, all right, we're good. But I'm like, I am such a dork. I can't believe this. You know, and I felt like dumb. And so I wanted to kind of like overly shame myself, you know to pay for my sin a little bit. And uh, and then I realized, like, that doesn't actually help anything because the whole point is to restore the relationship. So even if she forgives me, and now I'm like, yeah, and then, like, if I have to make myself pay for it a little bit more instead of receiving the forgiveness, we're not restored. That shame is still about me. It's about me looking at me and feeling bad about me. I'm not looking at her. We're not connecting. It's still about me. Shame is completely and totally selfish if we're already forgiven and we've already been atoned for, but we're still carrying shame. That is selfishness. And it's pride. 
We have been paid for once and for all. And once he says that we are forgiven, and once we've confessed what we've done wrong, and we've been atoned for, let it go. In the infamous words of some Frozen song, you know, that everyone was thinking about, so I had to name it. Let it go. There's a recital here. Our boys had a piano recital uh, last night, and one of the girls sang Let It Go, right? Yeah. Amy's, the, it was Amy, all Amy's students. Um, and so uh, we have to be able to let it go, and that's what he says. There is no longer any offering required, and some of us, we're still trying to provide offering. We're still carrying shame. We're still trying to be better or do better. And we're still trying to prove that we're okay. We're still trying to dot every I and cross every T and make sure that this is okay. That does not get us in fellowship with God. That gets us focused on ourselves. God is interested in worship, relationship, connection. He is a just judge. And he requires us to acknowledge our sin. Which is why he says, if you confess your sins, then he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive your sins and he will cleanse you. That is wash you. That is clean you out from all unrighteousness. You better be, better be saying it up in here. And... Uh, when we first carry that sin, there's the, t- there's the layers of temptation. So here are the layers of temptation. The layers of temptation are first, I will not acknowledge my sin. I will beat down my conscience and I will numb my conscience. And what happens in that is my life gets smaller and smaller and the, the, the range of joy in my life is equal to the range of the guilt and the shame that my conscience gives me. So if I sear my conscience, I also sear my joy. And I will not experience the ecstasy of a spectacular relationship with God unless I am also willing to confess the depth of my depravity and my rebellion, and my lying to God and to myself. So my temptation is to not confess that. Once I do confess that, then I have another temptation, and that is to hold on to shame instead of receiving forgiveness. And that is still about pride. So now I'm the, I'm the one who hates myself and loathes myself or is trying to prove something to make up for what I did. You know, so if because Jen forgave me, now I got to go and do all sorts of stuff the rest of the day to prove that I'm actually a good guy. It doesn't prove anything. It proves that I'm focused on me, not her. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that proves that I'm still trying to self-justify and I can't trust her to forgive me. So we can keep moving on. When we still try to sacrifice after Jesus is sacrificed, we do know what that says, right? It looks right up at that cross and we say, thanks, but it wasn't quite enough. I'll take it from here, Jesus. Ouch. Ouch. After pouring out his life so that we could be restored under relationship with him, you know? So that's the other temptation is to to still walk in that shame. And so uh, there is this moment with Jesus where um, he says that it's completely washed away and he asks us to believe him. And our minds are stuck in that pattern. Like, like uh, 
you know, like those who have been abused or those who have gone through post-traumatic stress or those who have experienced those things that affect them and, and, and might not be reflecting of the current reality. It's, it's a reflection of a, a past reality. And so we at times can really not feel free and not feel open because we still live in that religious baggage of, of um, you know, self-loathing. And what happens is, is if we confess a sin after we've already confessed the sin, this is what's happening. I'm walking up to Jesus and I'm saying, Will you, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And he says, for what? For that sin. I didn't see it. The first time we confess it, he saw it, he died for it. But if we go back and confess a sin after we've felt it and confessed it the first time, he doesn't see it anymore. He says, I'll remember your sins no more. And so we're actually saying, I'm sorry about something. And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. Literally, if I believe the scriptures, he forgot it. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, it's not there. I'm living under deception, beating myself for no good reason, you know? And all that is is the enemy trying to separate me again. It becomes another form of sin. It's a pride that won't receive forgiveness, okay? So that's the religious side of it, and we need to get over that. Um, now, here's the, the, the one other thing, and, and that's just this, that um, some of us, because we are, not, we are not of that religious place, like this was written to the religious people who knew they were trying to honor God and be worshipers. But some of us, that's not where we come from. That's not what we're about. We live in the secular world. You know, that's where we've just come from. And we weren't raised in an environment where we were constantly feeling like, oh, am I being a worshiper? Like, am I living up to it? And that guilt thing wasn't a part of us. We might be not all that guilty you know, and we might not carry that. We might not even know when we're sinning and not really aware of all that. We kind of thought life was about being happy, you know, and so we're trying hard to be happy. We might not be fully content. We might not be fully satisfied, but we're kind of blissfully unaware of how we're living insubmissively to God's plan for our lives. And we just live out here on the edge, trying to achieve more, trying to be more, trying to look this way, trying to act this way, trying to do this, trying to gain this, live in the material world and all of that. And we're not realizing that we can never be fully satisfied. But there's this thing in Numbers where it says, be sure your sins will find you out. And they will. And many times the, the counseling sessions that I have are with people who they were living in a way that wasn't submissive to, to what God's word says. And they were blissfully unaware of the fact that they weren't in submission to God's plan. And then later, as life catches up and all sorts of things aren't working in their life, they say, what's happening to me? And I say, well, let's look at what happened. And we realize, and we're like, you weren't walking with the Lord. There's consequences to that. And you're living in those consequences. God can redeem and he can restore and he can pull, but it's going to be a journey, you know, because there's consequences to that. And and that's where... uh, we can oftentimes not confess our sin because we're not aware of our sin. So here's the application. For those of us who are in that environment, this is for all, both these points are for all of us. This word right here tells us exactly what God thinks. And when I read it, it tells me where I'm wrong. Sinner, not doing it right on all sorts of levels. This morning when I was reading in Matthew, I was reading Jesus preaching about the, uh, the blind guides and these Pharisees, and he says, woe to you blind guides, because on the outside you look great, but on the inside there are bones and skeletons. And he says, and woe to you who make everything religious on the outside and make it look good, but underneath you don't have anything working for you. And in the middle of that, I'm like, what's my inside like? You know, I'm a pastor, 
And he's sitting here talking to them about, you sit in the seat of Moses. And he tells the, his disciples, he's like, do what they say and what they require of you, but don't do what they do because they're empty inside. And man, that was soul searching. I'm like, oh God. Like, and, and, and there's these moments where the words of Jesus just call us, where the words of the scripture call us to introspection, to look and to assess. And like David says, search me, O God. Know me. See if there is any unrighteous way in me. Lead me in the path everlasting. And so if he is our God, our guide, our king, then what we need to do is search the scriptures diligently, looking to where I do not match up with the scriptures and asking him to convict me of the places where I'm not submitted to it. I'm earnestly looking for conviction in my life, not because I'm masochistic and like feeling bad, but because I want to feel good being in deep relationship with my father. And here's the field guide to a good relationship with dad, you know? And so like, I'm going to read it looking for that. Okay. It doesn't mean that I can make myself good. It doesn't mean that I can impress him. What it does mean is the way he designed me and designed his kingdom is right here. Once I realize where that's wrong, then he gives me the other thing, which is to confess. And when I confess, there is forgiveness. And when there's forgiveness, it's my job to trust that that forgiveness is enough. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works that no one can boast. And so we can, we have all, everything's paid for. But it's paid for. I have to acknowledge that there's a need for payment. I have to submit the receipt, (laughs) you know, have him validate that it's paid for. And yes, I did spend this sin, you know, validate. All right. You saw it. I saw it. I feel the weight of it. I'm ashamed. This was really bad. Stamp approved, validated, free. Let it go. The last thread in the scripture is this. It says he's coming back again. Today's Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, he came walking into the temple. And there was different kinds of people there. There was these little tykes who were going, Hosanna to the son of David. They were prophesying. Little kids know it was the son of David. You know, little kids running around screaming prophecy. David's son. What are you talking about? And then the Pharisees are like, did you hear what they said? Stop them. Jesus is like, really? Like, I'm going to rebuke a kid? who randomly said, son of David, didn't you read that it's out of the mouths of babes, babes pours forth prophecy? Can you not see it? But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. It was Palm Sunday and Jesus came to the temple. But you know who they were? When dad comes home and we've been bad and mom told us we're going to get it, I'm hiding right here or under the bed. You know, and I'm tucked away and I don't want dad to see me. You know, I want nothing to do with that. There's a great video out there about a dog, a golden retriever or something that's ashamed. Anybody ever see that video? It is absolutely hilarious video to watch a dog truly feel shame. It was amazing. I mean, he's just like covering, cowering. They keep trying to get his face to look at him. He keeps turning his face away. Oh, it's an amazing video. And that's how we are with God when we either haven't confessed our sins or haven't received the forgiveness. And we are not waiting for him eagerly. We are dreading him. But what this says is, when he comes again, he's not coming to deal with sin. He already dealt with that. What he comes to do is to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, who realize sin's already dealt with. I'm not trying to better myself. I'm waiting on Jesus. 
He's got me. Every time something comes up, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? And then I confess it and I say, I'm sorry. And he forgives me and I'm done and I'm on and I'm moving on and I'm waiting for the next connection that we can have. And I'm eagerly waiting for him like a child who doesn't have a guilty conscience, who's waiting at the door for dad to come home. Say, hey, will you play with me? And dad's like, really right now? No, this is God the father who can't wait to be with us. And who the child's waiting to be there with. And the door's open and he comes to save us, to bring us back into deep relationship with himself. Palm Sunday will come again. There will be a day where he will come again. And on that day, there will be those who will be eagerly waiting and there will be those who won't. And it will be those who built their system on a sand system based on shame and guilt. And there will be those who built it on a rock of the forgiveness of the atonement of Jesus. I hope and pray that on that day, I will be standing on the rock of the forgiveness of the atonement of Jesus instead of my own self-righteousness or my blissful, unaware, unrepentant, rebellion, self-indulgent life. I would much rather be a broken, humble, having to lay it all out there and say, whatever, I just need Jesus. Amen? Thank you, God. Praise you, Jesus. We give you honor and glory. We give you All the praise. You are the only one. We praise you. We praise you. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you. You suffered in ways that we have not suffered for our behalf. We praise you. We honor you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.